Any, any, any prayer requests? You all have a copy of the Marina poem, yes? I'm actually looking forward to doing this. It's in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass. Um, God. Sort of stunning to hear that first reading again. Um, we want a king, and then um, being advised of what would happen, and um, and the people refusing God, and and God saying, "Give them what they want." Um, and that's the beginning of all for the beginnings of our church, in some sense, or one stage of it. Help us to be careful, Lord, of what we ask for. Um, um, it's particularly important for this class today because we're going to be dealing with works that um, focus principally on pronunciations, on giving things up, moving away from the world. Um, help us to be careful. You've called us out of the world. Um, that means giving up our families, our friends, our careers, whatever that means in the way of mystery in order that we can have them in the right way. So that whatever we do in the world puts us at risk, um, particularly with respect to those things that mean a lot to us. So I ask for a spirit of care on all of us to take seriously um, what you're asking. Um, ask for a special prayer for, or um, prayers of grace for two of our sons, Thomas and Christopher, who are struggling. And I know people are um, carrying burdens. We know it. I mean, you've shared your prayers with us. It's a great blessing for all of us, I think. For whatever burdens you carry that, um, that you, in your hearts, um, let God answer them. And for those of you who will be traveling, um, um, keep, keep them all safe. See them safely where they're going and back again. Meanwhile, in, in all that we're doing with this work, <coughs> help us to take seriously what we're reading, um, to live it, just not keep it in our heads. You didn't ask us to understand, you asked us to love. Um, our understanding increases with the work that we're doing. Help us to love. And in view of the reading today um, with the paralytic and his friends, uh, most of all, strengthen us in our faith. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <coughs> I'm going to do the poem, Marina, if you all pull it out. Um, I want to, on a personal note, I've got to say this. Uh, I'm not used to saying things like this, but it's appropriate, I think, today. Um, um, both of these works, the Marina poem and Murder in the Cathedral, present serious challenges to me, just being upfront about that. Um, when I was reading Marina, I mean uh, Murder, I was so aware that we that I, in my <coughs> recollection, I can't recall a work that deals so directly, so explicitly with holiness, with a martyrdom. Um, 
We've done, I mean, you know that one, the central purpose of our work together is to try to find Christ, to see him in the world, to see what these poets can, have done to help us open our eyes and our hearts. I can't remember a work that we've done in which holiness was up front. It was dealing explicitly with martyrdom. Um, so, and you know, <laughs> you know, at least as far as I'm concerned, that, that one of the challenges these works presents to all of us, certainly me, but all of us, is that we're not just supposed to read these to understand, we're supposed to read them and live them. It's like reading scripture. It's, it's it, the, the last thing I wanted to do when I took this on was read literature, read classics. You already know my feelings about that. Somebody starts talking about these works as classics, that means they're already dead. Um, oh, it really troubles me. Um, if there's any purpose to what we're doing, it's to find Christ and be strengthened in our efforts to get closer to him. So whatever we're learning, we're asked to put into practice. That's much harder. It's, uh, it's like um, you think you're going to escape from scripture by coming in here and reading literature. And if you've been reading it seriously, Achilles accepting his death. I mean, where can you go to hide? You know, there's no place to hide. So anyway, the, the two works we're doing today, I think, are particularly challenged because they deal with the quality of holding us so directly more than any work we've <coughs> So, and along that line, you know after, or towards the end of uh, murder, the knights come out and they do everything to vindicate themselves, to excuse themselves, and implicate us. So the book is pretty directly saying, where are we with all this? What are we doing? So on that cheerful note, <laughs> here, um, just a quick background. This is really important. Eliot um, went through a period of reading Shakespeare seriously, and he and he read a couple of critics who have been um, so formative in my own thinking on Shakespeare. The two knights. G.W. Knight was the more important in my mind, but two knights, both English, were writing works on Shakespeare, and they were take they were approaching the bringing things out of the plays that nobody else was. If you know the modern world, it's Freudian, feminist. Then it was other schools at work. Um, G. Wilson Knight um, was a much better reader of Shakespeare, and he took so many of his works and showed a divine transcendent element at work that no other critics were seeing. It was just, an, his work was extraordinary. And it's, it's true to the text, he's not reading in, he's not showing something that's not there, he's just a really good reader. Ellie was so taken by him <coughs> that, um, that it had an influence on his own writing at that, that time in his career. This poem arena <coughs> is named after the daughter of one of um, Shakespeare's heroes. Um, and, and I'm just looking forward. I'm, I'm seriously thinking, you know that we're coming to the end with Dostoevsky. If you guys are okay, what I'd like to do after Dostoevsky is read Pericles. It's, it's the most mystical. Pericles and Winter's Tale are the two most sacramental plays that Shakespeare wrote. And very few people read them precisely for that reason. They're reading Hamlet or Lear or other comedies. 
the other, the, what's called the romances, and that's not a good name, the, the, the later plays in his life, there's a sacramental quality, and in Pericles there's something mystical. It's extraordinary. I've mentioned it before. <coughs> the play starts out with Pericles going to a country to, um, to woo a woman. He's going to marry her. But it, there's a rite of passage. He has to answer a puzzle. And I'm going to try to give away as little as I can here because you know how much I don't like that. He, he has to answer a puzzle and in the middle of that ordeal he realizes something, I can't tell you, and he has to flee. While he's at sea, um, the, the, his wife, who's pregnant, um, apparently dies. So, and so he loses his wife and child. And if you remember Winter's Tale, those of you who did it, with me, you remember that Leontes believed that Hermione was um, adulterous and accused his best friend of adultery and plotted to kill him. He had to flee, he accuses his wife. He's certain that his wife has been unfaithful. He puts her in the tower when she's pregnant. She delivers this baby. The baby's name is Perdita, you remember. Um, Leonta takes one of his lords and tells him to take the baby away with the idea of having it killed. Antigonus, the Lord, ends up taking the baby to the land of his good friend, where the friend returns, so the girl will grow up there. That was not planned. It happened by a dream, because of a dream. Um, Leonte sends an, um, an embassy to an oracle to confirm that he's right. The people come back from the oracle saying, Leontes is a tyrant, he's wrong, he's killed his wife. Um, and um, he, he's responsible for the death of his son, and he will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. Paulina, who's a woman of faith, holds on to that oracle after, after Leontes thinks he's lost his wife. She apparently fainted and, and died at the news that they lost their son. Um, Paulina goes to Leontes and says, do not marry again until I say so. He's been a tyrannical king. He's now carrying the burden of having caused his wife's death, his son's death, the loss of his daughter, and the loss of one of his lords, the lords that took the girl ends up dying. So it's a heavy guilt. And she says, do not marry until I tell you. Mm -hmm. This is a king who's Robert, used you've confused people. Huh? This is Winter's Tale. Pericles. He started out with Pericles and shifted. I want to. I want to give so you can see the parallel. Oh, oh okay. And, and because I think <laughs> lots of people here have done it with it, but yeah. Um, um, the oracle, the embassy comes back saying that he's a tyrant and um, he will be without an heir. Pauline says to him, "You cannot marry." This is a king who's used to having absolute power. Whatever he says is done. He's, he puts his will under the will of a woman, a servant. She's the queen's servant, handmaid. All the lords come to him saying, have an heir. Now imagine the importance of it, because they're all going to argue, <clears throat> which is the greater good here? For you not to marry is stupid, because without an heir, the kingdom's going to go down. So he's putting his entire kingdom at risk <coughs> to... to um, in the service of this woman who's saying, you cannot marry until I tell you. He does that. Sixteen years pass, Perdita grows up. Remember, Perdita means that which is lost. Perdita, memory. Um, she's raised in uh, Polixenes' country. It's an idyllic 
a sort of agrarian country. Sicily is sophisticated and more like a city. She grows up and falls in love with the prince's son, Polixenes' son. The son and father fight again. There's another fight. It looks like another disaster is coming. They flee, come back to Sicily. So the daughters returned and they're reunited with their father. And at that moment, after the reunion between father and daughter takes place, Paulina takes the king out to a chapel where she's apparently had a statue of Hermione. And you know what happened. It's a holy moment. It's, it's liturgical. Um, all be quiet, she says. Um, and behold, God, like, hard to even describe it. It's had such an effect on me. Uh, Leontes approaches the statue, and it looks like it's breathing. It's, it's so lifelike. And he says, let me touch it. I mean, it's a frightening moment. It's almost unreal. And it's as if she breathes. He reaches, oh God. <laughs> he reaches out his hand, and she reaches out her hand, and they take each other. So for the first time in 16 years, they reconcile. It's a paradisal moment. Uh, to me, it's the most perfect paradisal <coughs> moment in all of literature. Dante gives us the Paradiso, but I don't think what he brings us to in the Paradiso is close to this. This is the reunion between a husband and wife who had been estranged and between whom there is this violence, you know, loss of son. So it's a moment of absolute forgiveness. Everything that he lost, almost, is returned. His daughter, um, the daughter will marry uh, um, Polixenes' son, and they'll have an heir. So the two kingdoms will be united. There's a marriage that comes out of this. It's an extraordinary moment. But at the center of this is this Perdita, this young woman, that which is lost is found. What Shakespeare's showing us is that faith is far greater than any worldly kingly power. Pauline is the one who believes in the oracle. Now think, think about how important reading is. The oracle says he's a tyrant. He won't have an heir until that which is lost is found. We give no, no interpretations. Nobody's around saying this is what's going. She just says don't marry. Sixteen years later, the daughters return. The oracle's fulfilled. So in one sense, the whole action have been, has been about something that's invisible. We don't see it. We only see its effects. Is everybody clear? It's Paulina's faith that makes all of this possible when everybody else wanted to fix the world. Because I'm saying that because I, I know our tendency is to hold on to things. You know, not risk losing them. Is everybody following? <clears throat> so it's an extraordinary affirmation of faith. And it's, it's a reenactment of a birth, a death, and a renewal, a regeneration. That's what's at issue in <coughs> play, okay? If we do Perdita, I mean uh, Pericles, I, we may do Winter's Tale again just to, because... Anyway, in, in Pericles, Shakespeare's doing something like that. This man, Pericles, goes out to marry. Something happens that forces him to flee. He can't go back to his own kingdom. He's at sea. He loses his wife, who's pregnant. The greater part of the play is taken up with these efforts to escape the evil that's coming after him. So he faces regime after regime after regime. And what Shakespeare's doing actually is exploring regimes, teaching us something about the different natures of cities, how different they are. Pericles experiences them all. Towards the end of the play, he's reunited with his daughter. He's at a place where this young woman is doing something, and he suddenly realizes um, something, and the two are brought together. Um, and then we, let me just read this. Uh, for, 
quickly. Um, when he sees her, when he sees her, he looks at her and says this. He looks at his daughter. He has not seen her, I can't even remember the time, 16 years, I don't remember now, but a long enough time so that she's a young woman. He looks at her and says, Thou that begettest him that did thee beget. He's looking at the young woman, the daughter, who has given him a new life, and he was the one that gave her life. So it's that experience that we have sometimes with a child or something um, that we experience as giving us new life. It's like one of our children doing something that we didn't expect, who because of their own actions draws closer to God. So it's a moment of rebirth. His whole life has been fleeing this thing. And then he says to her, um, or in, in this moment, give me a gash, put me to present pain, lest this great sea of joys rushing upon me or bear the shores of my mortality and drown me with their sweetness. He knows that he's on the edge of something transcendent and it so overwhelms him that he says, cut me, do something to protect me against this overwhelming thing because he can't believe it. It's so extraordinary. What happens after this moment is, or during this scene, this, what's going on here, is that he falls asleep in rest for the first time, you know, after this long ordeal of his life. It's like a foreshortening of each of our own lives that, you know, through all the suffering that we go through, we're brought to some point. He rests, and during that rest, he hears the music of the spheres. It's God's, the, the music of God's order. I've talked about it before. Each of the spheres has its own angel, its own angelic order. Each one has its own note, and together they produce this music of the spheres. We cannot hear it in our corporeal body because it's been mortally wounded. It can only be intellected, grasped. He's the only character in all of literature that I know of who hears the music of the spheres. That's how important it is. So there's this moment of oneness um, where this, this event takes place that is beyond belief. He's overwhelmed by it. And as a part of what goes on in this, he hears this music and he's at peace for the first time in his life. Okay. And Marina is the means of it. Remember, he looks at here and says, Thou that begettest me, that did, be, that did, did beget you. Is everybody clear on the story? That's Shakespeare. <coughs> is everybody clear? Okay. And you know that Marina from the Latin mar means sea. And you know, or should know, those of you who've been doing this, you know that the sea's always an image of that which is mysterious, uncontrollable. It's also an image of the instrumentality of grace. That in those things that we don't have control over. Remember, our, our, our home is on land. Remember, if we go back to the Odyssey, everything took place at sea. If you read Shakespeare's The Tempest, Melville's Moby Dick. There it is. That land is our home. Um, Ishmael was leaving home because he was so disillusioned by everything that was going on there. He had to go to sea. It's at sea where all these mysteries take place. So the sea has always been an image of that which is overwhelming, that which can't be controlled, and that which is an instrument of grace. It's 
It's where mysteries take place, where changes take place. So Marina is the name of the daughter, and Eliot writes this poem during this period when he's been affected by these last plays of Shakespeare. Okay? I think that covered it. Uh, having said that, let me say this. Um, I, I don't want to, what's going on? Um, I have to say some things about this, oh, sorry. this um, poem because I think it's just too hard, it's too complicated. Um, the, poem, the poem does um, what Shakespeare does in Pericles. He's bringing together what's strange and familiar. I want to say this, I want everybody really to hear, because the presumption is when any one of us goes to heaven, I hope we pray for each other that we all meet there one day. When we go to heaven, there's going to be something familiar. How can another, we're going to be who we are, that's God made us to be. There's going to be something absolutely familiar and absolutely strange. So the, the poem is about that in-between place moving towards. It's the middle of a conversion, leaving an old way, moving. And if, I'm, I'm trusting that everybody in this room has had that sort of thing and knows that sometimes it can be overwhelming. It's frightening. Because when you feel like you're leaving something, you're entering into something you don't know anything about, the first thing you want to do is get back to safety or comfort or what you know. But the whole point of this poem is that there's this connection between familiarity, what's familiar and what's strange. This. Think about St. Paul, because he had that visit to the third heaven. Imagine what it was like when he returned to this world. To, to look at humans the way that we look at each other and still carry something that he saw in the third heaven that we don't see. So there's, there is in this poem this sense of something other that he's had a glimpse of, the speaker. <coughs> had a glimpse of and he carries it with him to this world. So it, it's about a conversion, um, having seen something that changes the way you stand here. Just like Leontes, Perdita, Hermione, Pericles, all these characters, okay? And in some ways, hopefully all of us can, so. Um, I'm gonna comment as I go through this um, to try to help. And um, then I'm going to read it afterwards, just through. The epigram at the top is taken from a play by the Roman dramatist Seneca, who wrote a play on Hercules, Hercules' fury. And the quote um, are the words that Hercules experiences when he wakes up and discovers what he's done because he killed his wife and children. Now think about the irony of Eliot connecting those two things, because it's crucial to the poem. Hercules, in a rage, killed his wife and children. Pericles wakes up from the music of the spheres. So those two perspectives are juxtaposed, set against each other, and we're meant to hold them in our mind. Okay? How does that translate, do you know? It's what, um, what place, what... Um, what region, um, what, um, what world are we in, something like that. <clears throat> what's this place, what's this region, what's this 
what part of the world or what world. Then he's confused. He wakes up and doesn't quite know where he is. But in Hercules' case, he wakes up after he's killed his wife and children and will see the horror of what he's done. And you know that Pericles has, I'm gonna, we're going to do this play. He, he, he recovers from a virtuous life and he experiences the music of the spheres. It's a, it's a moment of holiness. So, <coughs> if you had just had a glimpse of that, if you had had any immediate experience of that, imagine your, what your response would be if you were back in the world. <coughs> Marina, by T.S. Eliot. What seas, what shores, what gray rocks and what islands, what water lapping the bow, and scent of pine and the wood thrush singing through the fog, what images return, O oh, my daughter. Those who sharpen the tooth of the dog, meaning death. Those who glitter with glory of the hummingbird, meaning death. Those who sit in the sty of contentment, meaning death. Those who suffer the ecstasy of the animals, meaning death. Now, what he's just given us are four images that are meant to stand in contrast to what he's just described. So in the first one, he's, he's describing those who are violent, who sharpen the tooth of the dog, yeah? Um, who are given to violence. Those who glitter with the glory of the hungry, that, that is those who want to display their wealth or their vanity, whatever their worldly accomplishments, their self-centeredness and look how successful I am or, you know, that's the, the glory of the hummingbird, meaning death. Those who sit in the sty of contentment, meaning death. That is, those who are too self-satisfied, um, who are complacent, take their blessings for granted. Those who suffer the ecstasy of the animals, meaning death, that is, living at an, according to just sensations, I think, lusts and physical pleasures. So let me go through that and then carry forward, okay? But do you see, he's, he, the, the opening lines are meant to intimate. There's nothing clear. It's an intimation of, of life in its fullness, some experience he's had. And then he sets off against that all those ways that take us to death, the very opposite of life. And then he goes on. What seas, what shores, what gray rocks, what islands, what water lapping the bow, and scent of pine, it's on a trip, a journey, the wood thrush singing through the fog, what images return, oh my daughter. Those who sharpen the tooth of the dog, meaning death. Those who glitter with the glory of the hummingbird, meaning death. Those who sit in the sty of contentment, meaning death. Those who suffer the ecstasy of the animals, meaning death are become insubstantial, reduced by a wind, a breath of pine, and the wood song fog by this grace dissolved in place. What is this face less clear and clearer, the pulse in the arm less strong and stronger, given or lent, more distant than stars and nearer than the eye whispers, and small laughter between leaves and hurrying feet under sleep where all the waters meet. So the images, presumably, of his daughter, um, because once the transformation takes place, either through her or his own experiences, he'll not only feel everything familiar to her, he'll recall those things. Between, you, can, you know, we've had experiences like this when our children are young, running through leaves, and, and then all the sorrows of life, what they do. But now these are set against this, this intimation of this other, you know, what sees, what shores. 
Bowsprint cracked with ice and paint cracked with heat. I made this. I have forgotten and remember the rigging wheat and the canvas rotten between one June and another September. Made this unknowing, half-conscious, unknown, my own. It became part of him. The garbage strake leaks. The seams need caulking. This form, this face, this life. Living to live in a world of time beyond me. Let me resign my life for this life, my speech for that unspoken. The awakened lips parted, the hope, the new ships. What seas, what shores, what granite islands towards my timbers, and wood thrush calling through the fog, my daughter. Um, I can read the whole thing again and let it go, or we can stop. You guys okay? Okay. It takes rereading, read it a couple of times and meditate on what he's doing, this experience of conversion, of having left a life on a journey, um, aware of some other world, but set against it the things that pushes towards the opposite, no life, death, and the way in which the familiar and the strange are brought together. Okay. Okay. Good. That was good? That was good. It was long, but it was good. God bless you. Somebody pray for my wife, please. Oh, good. Thanks. She was saying this morning, because she went to print it off this morning, and she said, what she's saying right now that you're good, she said, I don't understand this, Mom. said, let me know. I, we we're supposed to talk about it afterwards. But I guess she was so satisfied she said good. She understands it. So It's a difficult poem. By the way, T.S. Eliot said, uh, for a poem to be good in the modern world, to think about how important this is. For a, phone to, or, sorry, for, for a poem to be good in the modern world, it has to be hard. Um, why? Because the world has become so complex, particularly with the post-Christian age, where people don't live their faith anymore. It's a much more complicated world. David? When he wrote this in his time, did he have to explain this to the critics, or did they grab it all? Oh. Over? I mean, is it, I guess what I'm saying, when brilliance is done, is it, is it accepted, not accepted, but it is, is it understood at the level that the brilliance is communicated? Or do they talk to him? I mean, is it just right away they get it? I, I, there's no easy answer to that, David. I think they're good critics, and, and let me just give a couple of examples. Um, there are lots of there are some critics in Europe who understood Faulkner right away, and others who could make no sense of him. They're all critics. Some of them are. You just know you're in the presence of really good readers. They see. Do they have Eliot's brilliance? I don't think so, but they obviously have a depth of mind. Whatever training they've had. And what happens is that critics begin to write on these things, and then as they read, you know from discussions, they learn from each other, and it helps open up more of the poem. So at some point later on, there will be a fuller reading of that poem with all of its difficulties than there would have been when it first came out. Because when Eliot and Joyce wrote, when um, James Joyce wrote Ulysses, I'm going to talk about it in a minute. I mean, first of all, it was banned from America, there's a toilet seat in it. I mean, it's just a, anyway, it's just, it's, 
I mean, people just don't understand very well, you know. And but if they're good critics and they write on it, they learn from each other, and you learn to see more deeply into a work than was possible when it first came out. And I thought your word was just so well chosen. If if you have the brilliance of somebody like Eliot, and you're trying to because that's an extraordinary poem, but on the surface, who can read it? You know, there's no way any any of us can read it. And but it's a measure of of the the difficulty of what he's trying to communicate to us, because the danger is if you make it too literal, you're going to turn it into a joke. If you get caught in this world in your descriptions of this world, you're not going to do justice. It's a poem about a transition involving two realms. And it's, here it is. It's the apophatic. You all know what the apophatic means now. It's it's a knowledge by absence. It's what we don't know. So there's an apophatic, really an apophatic element that runs through Eliot. He's trying to he's trying to make us aware of something by what we don't know about it. <coughs> How does anybody do that? We're so caught in a literal world that we want everything to be literally in front of us without knowing that that's partly destroying the mystery of what it's pointing to. So Eliot's peculiarly difficult. When I think, because I just think that his depths are so great. You know. Did anybody ever think of Eliot being a contemporary Shakespeare? Being a contemporary, contemporary Shakespeare. I mean, he's able to penetrate to this level like Dave was talking about, that he's grasped things that are beyond our perceptions. But you, and just like I woke up one day and I, I got a glimpse of what Shakespeare was talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it's a, what have I missed for so long? Yeah. Uh, but I was thinking that, I was thinking before I came to class today that Elliot, after reading Murder in Cathedral, I said, oh my God, the depth of this is yeah. so profound. Yeah. And, that's, and I only had that experience with Shakespeare recently. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, and you're saying that he read Shakespeare and this, it precipitated this poem? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, except that oh, the only thing to put into that, Tom, is that remember that um, Eliot had the advantage of G.W. Wilson Knight and his criticism. Because if you look at the criticism on Shakespeare up until that book, Knight wrote his book, it just doesn't come close. There's so many aspects of Shakespeare. You know, you, you can take a lot and still, and get a lot, and still miss some. G. Wilson Knight did these studies on Shakespeare that showed this transcendent element in all the plays that I just think broke down a wall and opened up perspectives. And Eliot read him. And I think it was reading of Knight that helped him see things of Shakespeare that I'm, I'm guessing he wouldn't have seen without him. Knight was that good. But once he'd seen him, it changed his reading of Shakespeare. Do you know that when Merton was at Columbia, <coughs> it was his, his literature teacher that opened his eyes. Yeah, I know. He, he was reading Shakespeare in a whole different yeah, way. Yeah, <coughs> yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, where is the cathedral? Okay, quick review. Um, I just want to touch on um, Moby Dick and, and uh, Scarlet Letter for a, for a second. Remember, we, we didn't do Moby Dick when we did Scarlet. We did Moby Dick a year ago, whenever it was. But I want to, was it a couple of, I want to mention just two things 
before we move on into our world, current or contemporary world here, remember that um, that what Melville's dealing with in Moby Dick is the horrors of Calvin's notions of predestination and free will. That's absolutely crucial to understand that work. Because you know that when Ahab sets off on his, jo his journey, he is outraged with the idea that a thing of nature could have had a purpose in mind when the whale wounded him. So he, he wants to do nothing in life except get back at that whale. Because he's, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant man. He knows that... Um, he believes, like lots of people, that, that things in nature have an animate purpose. That, um, that if, if his understanding of the whale is correct, it has to have a metaphysical origin. The whale didn't come out of nowhere. It's, it's an image of something in nature that represents a metaphysical reality, God. So to put this plainly, if, if, um, if Calvin claimed that God determined everything and he determines our lives, that some people are destined for hell and some people for heaven, for God to create a creature who's already evil before he enters this world means there's something evil in God. It's imputed to him. Otherwise, where did it come from? Okay? The Catholic doesn't believe that. We believe that all things are good. I mean, we, we, we make stupid choices, we do evil or it. But Calvin believed that all things are predestined and some people are destined to hell. Ahab is enraged at that thought. The fact that man would not have free will and the fact that he's predestined and has no say over his actions outraged him. And it's with that kind of outrage that he takes on this quest. He wants to get back at that whale. So at the center of that work is <coughs> Ahab and this titanic anger um, wanting to get back. And when he calls the crew uh, to join him, you know that he's appealing to their suffering. We've gone through this. Because everybody suffered. So he touches a chord in everybody. Everybody wants to get back because nobody grows up escaping wounds. None of us. None of us. We all carry hurts. So everybody immediately rushes, joins into that. And, he, and Ishmael says, my shouts were louder than anyone. He was so committed to that. So, but two things happen from that. I mean, the Ahab quest carries out. You know it's going to lead to the destruction of the entire crew. But Ishmael begins gradually to dissociate himself from that quest. He begins to love. And if you've read it well, you know that he finds goodness everywhere. There's not a thing that he looks at in the 150 chapters. We've gone through it. There's not a thing he looks at, paintings, whales, sky, sea, in which he does not find some good meaning. There's goodness everywhere in creation. In the, in the book that we got, if, if you remember, I've written an essay in the back. The, the point that I make at the end of the essay is that Ishmael is returning us to a Catholic tradition, that he finds goodness in being. It's a return to being. Because the modern, modern mind, the modern Protestant mind cuts off from being. It says the effect of the fall was complete. Everything's depraved. Nature's depraved. We're depraved. So there's no intelligibility. There's no goodness there. What Melville's doing is um, what I called an exorcism. He's performing an exorcism on these dark theologies, and he's affirming the goodness of creation and of love through Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael's the one to tell the story. He's a Jonah figure coming back to tell the Ninevites 
us what's important for us to know. So it's rooted in the Bible, but it's just full of new scientific discoveries. And so he's doing an amazing job of bringing things together. So Melville's doing that. Hawthorne is dealing with um, Calvin again, but he's, he's dealing more directly with the issue of faith. Because you remember that the whole community came over, <coughs> united in their belief that faith was greater than anything. And Hutchinson reached a point where she was um, removed from the community because she took the position absolutely consistent with the belief she had when she came. That her faith raised her above any accountability to the natural order. If you moved with the spirit, you didn't have to be accountable to any of nature's laws. Faith, faith raised her above that. The majority of the Puritans took faith as their guiding principle, but they said that the evidence of their faith was conformity to the church practices. That showed you that your faith was genuine. So you've got a schism immediately over this understanding of um, faith. And Hawthorne stepped into that world. Because what we find is the majority of the people who, who believe that they're saved, they're, they're Calvinists, they're among the saved, they look down on anybody who doesn't conform to their ways. I've, I've extrapolated, I've said, that's still with us. What is produced in our world is a fundamentalist culture, a Protestant culture, and an adversarial culture. Another culture that says, you hypocrites, look, you know, it's created those kinds of divisions in our world. Everybody who's among the saved looks down at Hester. They see her as a sinner. And um, they look at Dimsdale, ironically, as a saint. That's one of the great ironies of the book. That they think they know, on the basis of outward signs, what's inward. They completely misread him, and in some ways, misread her. What Hawthorne is showing us is that it's only when you learn to bear your own sins that you learn how to love. So long as you think you're among the righteous and saved, you're going to look down on people whether you know it or not. There will be an element of contempt. It's one of the ironies we see playing out is that as Hester carries her burden, you know that she gets glimpses of these women who, who want to approach her. And they all have something in their eyes that, that make her aware that they're aware of their sins. But they can't bring them to anybody. Because to do that would put them outside their church. So you've got this black-white world, Hawthorne's rendering it, and doing all he can to take us into the interior of Hester and Dimsdale. And what we learn is that the, the, the burden of guilt um, becomes enormous for Dimsdale. I mean, it just grows, it, it takes on titanic proportions. By the end, when he makes his confession, he, he's the, the size of his guilt, the enormity of it is so great, it crushes him to make that confession ends his life. So Hawthorne is, is I think, doing a refounding. I think it's his answer. It's his, remember, he took on the guilt. It was his way of trying to answer this horrible dichotomy, this, this unhealthy split in that community um, that still lives in, you know, during his time and ours. Um, and one of the questions that I raised last week when he ended is, what to make of that confession. And one of the things I saw this time that I had not seen years ago is, remember that there's an irony. He confesses earlier in one of his homilies. He says, I'm the worst sinner in the world. And Hawthorne's comment on it is, he, that was one of the worst sins he ever committed. Um, 
Hawthorne believed, he even said openly, Hawthorne believed it was really important for us all to give some indication of our sinfulness, to, you know, not make an open, but give some sense, because otherwise the danger for us is self-righteousness, we're above it, we're, we're among the elect. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the questions that I raised last week is, what do we do with that confession? In the Catholic Church, because the sacraments do exist, they don't in that early community. When you go to confession, you, you, our belief, our faith, is that we're confessing to Christ. The priest is in persona. Um, and that it's objective. Remember Dante's two keys, the golden key, the silver key. That the church, Peter had the, author, Peter had the authority to, to loosen bind. In Hawthorne, it's completely subjective. Dimsdale does it, people believe it or not, people get different readings of it. I mean, it just, even though in some sense it answers the problem of the book, in some ways it doesn't. Um, the, the whole problem of the objectivity or the authority of, of offering an atonement in Christ or forgiveness. And Anyway, um, both of those books are dealing with fundamental problems in our, in our character, our national character, our American character. And what they both had in common, what they recognized between themselves is this. What set them apart, both of them hated the transcendentalists. Emerson, the Unitarians, all the, that group that had taken the Protestant belief and, and uh, <coughs> rationalized it, the Unitarians. There was no trinity. <coughs> reason was man's highest kind. The reason they so disliked that group, the transcendentalists, who, by the way, who are the, who are the great idols of most intellectuals, I mean, the intellectuals will look at the transcendentals, Emerson and Thoreau and, you know, um, <laughs> um, Emerson's great work, um, self-reliance. To your own drum, you know, be true, rely on yourself. It, it just shakes me when I think about that. Hawthorne and Melville loved each other because they both believed in what they called the brotherhood of sin. It was the sense that we share sins with each other that makes it possible for us to love each other. When we start acting like we're above people, we're in trouble. We're all sinners. And so those two works in the middle of the 19th century were dealing with a crisis in faith, Protestantism, 19th century. The theologies are beginning to fade, but the spirit <coughs> continues. There are still a lot of people who believe in predestination and you know, degrees of this stuff. And, that man doesn't have a free will and so So we're leaving that world, okay? Um, I want to just quickly read two passages from Melville to recall this and then we'll do all that. This is from Moby Dick. This is in 41, you don't have to go, that, go back there, but Moby Dick had reaped away Ahab's leg as a, power, as a mower, a blade of grass. No turban Turk, no hired Venetian or Malay could have smote him with more seeming malice. Up until this time, remember, this is just, God, this is amazing. Up until this time, in any epic, in any real adventure story, the hero made himself a hero by defeating another person. Turnus, Iago, you, you name them, okay? This is the first work in literature in which the hero has to take on nature itself. Look at Stephen King's works and you'll find that same sense that evil is evil is a real thing. It's Manichaean. Evil is a real thing. It's in nature. 
Small reason were there to doubt then that ever since that almost fatal encounter, Ahab cherished a wild vindictiveness against the whale, all the more fell for that in his frantic morbidness, he at last came to identify with him not only all his bodily woes, but all his intellectual and spiritual exasperations. The white whale swam before him as the monomaniac incarnation of all those malicious agencies which some deep men feel eating in them till they are left living on with half a heart and half a lung. All the subtle demonisms of life and thought all evil to crazy Ahab were visibly personified and made practical to saleable in Moby Dick. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by his whole human race from Adam down. And then as if his chest had been mortar, he burst his hot heart, a shell upon it. You know, we're not supposed to feel sorry for tragic heroes. <laughs> it's hard for me not to feel for Ahab, given what he was facing. This is when Ahab gathers the crew together, and he's going to get, he's going to get them in his quest. He's going to entice them, bribe them, persuade them. He's going to appeal to their sense of having suffered unjustly. How many of us get really angry when something unjust is done to us? We're ready to pick up swords and chop off heads unless you're really patient like I am. <laughs> Suzanne, what do you say? <laughs> you didn't have this. You already knew. <laughs> I, think, I think the laughter speaks for itself. I'm going to have to take a second to recover from this. <laughs> that I even said that. I, you, you all know that I couldn't have said that unless it were ironic. He says, Harky again, the little lower layer. All visible objects, man, are but as pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth a molding of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask, how can the prisoner reach out, side except by thrusting through the wall? To me, that white whale is that wall. Remember now, according to the Protestant, everything's corrupt. But if it's corrupt, it has to have a source metaphysical. Where did all the evil come from? <coughs> What's that source? He wants to strike through that the mask, the wall, the ocean, the whale, a human being, to get to its source. To me, that white whale is the wall shoved near to me. Sometimes I think he's not beyond, but tis enough. He tasks me. He heaps me. Evil's everywhere. I see him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate, and be the white whale agent, or be the white whale principle, whether he's the means or the thing behind it, moving it. Um, be agent or whale pr principle, I will wreck that hate upon him. Talk not to me of blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. For could the sun do that, then could I do the other, since there's ever a sort of fair play here in jealously presiding over all creatures, but not my master man, if even that fair play. Who's over me, truth had no confines. Take off thine eye, more intolerable than friends, glarings as adulty, he goes on. He's so outraged that, um, that evil could have this place that it would be predetermined um, and that he would have no will to save it. We, we know that his pride is tragic. The scope of it is too great. But it seems to me he, um, it's all the greater because what he's taking on has become endemic. 
this this sense of evil that's innate in man and what it's doing to human beings. So, so both of these men were tackling something peculiarly American. America, more than Europe, is more explicitly, more directly religious. The two most religious books coming out of the 19th century are American. We've read them. Nobody in Europe comes close to doing this. But both of them are tackling what they see as deep disorders in our culture. So we're leaving that and going to murder in the cathedral. Okay? So... <coughs> This is us. This is us. This is us. Okay. It's impossible to look at Eliot and understand it all without seeing him in the context of modernity. When Eliot writes, um, the First World War is just ending. It was a world war. It was devastating to Europe, the whole world. Um, people are still recovering from the catastrophe of it. Um, Darwin has written on the origin of the species. He published it in 1859, I think. And in that book, he was arguing that there is some force at work um, that, that he described in terms of a natural selection. But something was at work um, um, showing an evolution from lower grades of species to higher. Um, um, there's no explanation of that. It's blind. Um, the only thing that can be said about it is that the, the, those that seem superior su survive. Lots of people were using Darwin's argument to um, support um, euthanasia or um, genetic training, you know, that we, that, we, that we could create a human being that would survive. Um, and so it, it would, they used it to defend euthanasia or suicide or get rid of the weak. Uh, it produced all sorts of um, schools that, that were anti-humanist, re really anti-humanist. Um, Freud um, writes his works, I think his, in, I can't remember, introductory lectures were written, I think, in 1915. And in that work, Freud is arguing that man has no free will. He's explicit. He believes that man does not have free will, that man's a product of forces, that what the driving forces of man's character are what he calls the edible complex, that is the desire on the part of each man to kill his father. To, very Jewish. Freud was Jewish. He, 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 Freud hated normative Judaism. He hated it. He was not a practicing Jew, but temperamentally he was very Jewish. That every, every boy grows up wanting to kill his father, he saw that as an um, a, a illustration of a, a larger paradigm in which man wants to kill God, to overthrow the father. Um, and that he's driven by what he called polymorphous perverse instincts, that, so whatever sexual appetites you have or drive you. And it's on the basis of that that he developed all these theories about repression, compensation, transference, these dynamics <coughs> that, that um, are the result of these basic drives that we have. So Freud based all of his theories really on what you can call our animal nature. You, you can call it the animal unconscious. 
but he had no understanding of the spiritual unconscious. None. He denied it because he didn't believe in God. So the idea that graces or um, what's going on in Elliot, in Marina, that anything like that could happen, um, he would explain Marina in reductive terms. He would reduce it to some animal instinct, some sexual instinct or aberration. So those motions, those schools are underway and they're shaping a whole generation um, of thought. And it's in that context that Elliot, in that context that Elliot's writing. What, his first early poem is um, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, in which Prufrock goes on this assassination, this meeting. Um, and you know, those of you who did it, remember that, it's, that the backdrop for that is it was Guido in hell who, uh, who took us on the journey with the understanding that it wouldn't get out. So we're entering an infernal world in Prufrock. And the other great poem in 1922, which some people take as the landmark poem of modernity, was The, the Wasteland. Because in that poem, it is sort, sort of like an epic um, lyric. It's a long lyric. It's <coughs> five or six or seven pages, I can't remember. In that poem, he's making clear the sterility of the modern world. That spiritually it is dead. That it's given over to all these things. and. Um, we're in a post-Christian age. We've entered an age in which the God who came has been denied largely. New ways of reading, scientific, political, um, are, are shaping men's minds. So we're in an enlightenment mind. You know, in the 19th century, Voltaire and all the great intellectuals carried forward with greater authority because they seemed to have science behind them. So we've entered a time of real crisis. You know, those of you who have been here, that Eliot ended his life with the four quartets, which I think are the most extraordinary poems of our time. They're, they're extraordinary. But um, It's during this period that he writes um, Murder in the Cathedral, and he takes Thomas Beckett as his hero. <clears throat> Two principles that were important for Eliot, particularly for those of us in literature. One was his belief that you couldn't read a work individually. He made the claim that all works form this simultaneous body of knowledge. That once, once they're written, they enter. And you have to learn to read books in their tradition. It's one of the reasons we've been doing this with me. You know, you hear me constantly going back to Melville or Homer or Dante or that you can't read a work in isolation any more than you can understand a human being in isolation. We are part of each other. We're a part of the past. The past is in us. If we are to have any understanding, we have to enter that body and, while knowing that it's always pointing to something beyond, like Eliot in Marina, that there's, that through it we get glimpses of something else, um, Paul's third heaven. And the other thing that we had to learn to read that way, that he believed that in the scientific world, because it was taking all sense of origins, Origins of the species. There's, it's a big bang, or you know that. That um, what Joyce did, James Joyce, an, an Irish who was an Irish Catholic, wrote a book called Ulysses, which is modeled on Homer's The Odyssey. And Eliot had nothing but praise because he said Joyce gave us the answer because what Joyce did allows us to carry myth forward as an organizing principle, take our mythic understanding away, the gods, the mythic, something mythic in us we lose our sense of who we are as humans. So Joyce's Ulysses, I almost want to do that with you, except it's too hard. It's just, it's, it's a really hard book. 
What one of the chapters, one of the chapters in the in the bar, is is written in the form of a fugue. It it it, it unfolds linearly because you know we can't. No writer can present. In a piece of music, you can hear two notes simultaneously. In literature, you can't. You've got to read sequentially. But Joyce has written it so that we know that what we read linearly, sequentially, is meant to be linear, simultaneous. Because in a few, you can hear one voice and then another, and then the two overlap. And so he's written a chapter modeled on a fugue. It means you have to read it and then put it back together again. That's, I mean, the moderns are doing, not making... Life, because the modern world is so screwed up. Um, in Murder of the Cathedral, one of the voices that we should hear, and today we won't because we don't know the tradition, those of you, if those of you who've read Aeschylus's Oresteia know that that's the first great sequence of dramatic works. It, it has to do with Agamemnon returning home and his wife Clytemnestra. You know from the Iliad, Clytemnestra kills him because to begin the war he had to sacrifice his daughter. She's so outraged that she makes a pact with her lover, who's also been wounded by people back in Agamemnon's family. The two conspire to kill him. Agamemnon comes home, she kills him with his help. In the middle play, the libation bears Orestes, who is Agamemnon's son, has to kill his mother. Apollo says you can't, the patricide is, is, I mean, these are all, you can't, what you're seeing is you can't escape these wounds. It's just going to go on. In the last one, the Eumenides, the, 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 the Eumen Eucharist, the, the, the gratitude givers, the thankful givers, um, heal Orestes with Athena's help. A, a trial is held, uh, putting Orestes at, 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 um, at risk of death, she helps defend him and puts off the raging, the the women, the, Furious. the Furies, who want to who want to kill um, Orestes because when he comes, he has. You can imagine if you kill your mother, father, you carry these disorders that that will overwhelm you. So the Furies are those images of those disorders that enter him, and that will drive him mad. He comes and with Athena's help there's a courtroom scene and <coughs> Athena makes possible an answering of both parties. And what emerges in that moment is Athens. It's the founding of Athens as the just city. It's the beginning of our democracy. Eliot's playing on that because he constantly uses this, this, the term, the curse on the house, the house, the house. It's in a, cha it's in a cathedral, but, but the language is repeated, a house. Um, so we hear Aeschylus in a number of ways. One is the curse on the house, that something's come to visit. The chorus wants it to get away. People are frightened. Something's going to happen. They, it's been there all the time. They knew it was coming, and now it's upon them. This curse can't be... Whatever's going to happen can't be stopped. The language is formal. It's not colloquial. In making it formal, he's taking us back to Aeschylus again. There's something incantatory, ominous, in that formality. If it, were a, <coughs> if it were a colloquial language, we'd be back with Chaucer and the rhymes. It would be too funny, you know. This is solemn, um, liturgical, a sacrifice will be involved. Um, Beckett's going to be murdered. Um, so there are all these things from the past that Eliot's bringing into the play. 
that affect its quality. It's not a light play. It's very solemn. There's a formal quality you can't miss. Um, you remember, too, that um, Eliot's aware of Chaucer and Canterbury Tales all takes place in the pilgrimage these people are making to the shrine of St. Thomas. Um, Beckett's, I mean, uh, Boethius' still point is very much at the point of this. You remember from uh, Boethius that there's a distinction between the perimeter of the circle, the circumference, and the still point at the center. He was making a distinction between two kinds of time, what he called fate, in which case you're involved in the causes, the causalities of the world, what you want, what drives you, what drives the priests, what drives the tempters, pleasure, power, or your being with God at that center, um, in, in which case there's a sense in which you're either distanced from that world of fate, you're in a world of providence, um, and um, you're more one with God, and the whole way you live your life will be simpler. Um, so all of these elements are playing. Beckett himself, remember, was made um, chancellor and was very effective, very effective as a chancellor. He, he helped the poor, he helped rule in a just way, his aim was justice. Henry II wanted um, Beckett to, to hold on to his position as chancellor and become archbishop because he believed that it would give him greater control over the bishops and the nobles in the land. When Bishop was, or when Beckett was um, made an archbishop, he resigned. And that caused a rift between him and Henry. Henry was already war with the Pope because Henry wanted to have jurisdiction over clergy who committed crimes. The Pope wanted to have authority over them because they were under his office. And it was on that basis that Henry <coughs> went to war, was at war with the Pope, and he was at war with the French king in, or in uh, Normandy. So the, these tensions between England and Normandy, um, Becket, when, um, when things go bad between Becket and Henry, Becket flees to France, to Normandy, to get the protection of the king. Um, Becket's, um, uh, Henry turns the bishops against Becket because he wants them to support his policies. When they do, Becket excommunicates them. So everything that Becket does sets himself against the king, the bishops, the nobles. And you'll see that play out in the, in the play, okay? When he returns, he, he knows, knowing Henry, that the likelihood is he's not going to survive, that Henry will kill him. So those are the background tensions of the play, okay, and some of the things that Eliot's doing. One last thing about, sorry, one last thing about the structure of the play, you know that there's two scenes, the, the first scene, the homily, and then the second scene, and it's separated by a couple weeks almost, or a week or forgotten. Um, there's two scenes. They both take place in the cathedral, and there's a, a homily. The second scene divides down into two, because it starts in the Archbishop's Hall and then goes to the cathedral. So there's a slight division. It's interesting to me, I, I don't want to push this too far, but there's a way in which the structure of the poem, the drama, sorry, I'm going to call it a poem, resembles the mass. There are indroits in the beginning, towards the middle, there's a homily, and right after the homily, there's a sacrifice. Um, Beckett will die. Um, one of the great themes of the of the play, if not the central theme, there are all these references to day, Christmas the day, St. Stephen the day, the Holy Innocents the day, 
Nothing is said about it, it just says St. Stephen, the day. It's as if Eliot is asking us to pay attention, asking ourselves whether when we celebrate the Mass, when we celebrate any of these occasions, saint days, um, whether we really enter into that day in a timeless way, whether we really distance ourselves from the world or whether we're caught up with it the way the characters are here. Because the whole play has to do with the call out of this world to martyrdom, to renounce the world, to be with Christ, to give up the things that make us, you know, the dog's day, the, the bee, the, the, you know, the, that I just read from Marina, the, the beauty of the... Um, we glitter with the glory of the hummingbird, sit in the sty of contentment, suffer the ecstasy of animals, that there are these various ways we have of avoiding a crucifixion, self-denial, self-renunciation. Those are the great themes of this play. That's why I said at the beginning to me, it's a, it's a, it's, it's such a challenging, convicting play, I think, because it's, it's showing the way to Christ, is renunciation of the world and how much we're giving to it or not. So, let me stop. I think I've covered most of the things. What I'd like to do right now is go through the priests and the, um, the tempters to distinguish them, to see what Eliot's doing with them, okay? But before I do that, any, any questions or comments about it? Yeah. I was struck, could you comment this for a minute? I was struck by the binary nature of the language. You understand, but you don't understand. You this, but that you did, you know. Yeah. That goes throughout the yes. whole play. What's the point of that? And, you know, That's such like, a good observation, Jay. Anybody comment on that? I think I've already done it. But I think it's just, because we've talked about this a lot. It's the apophatic, right there. I mean, you just you just described it perfectly. And in Marina's, a wonderful example of the app, you know, he gives us these little hints of something familiar, but they're done in such a way as they suggest something else that's not perfectly right. Who of us, Paul had a vision in the third heaven. He doesn't stay there, he comes back. I imagine when he came back, he saw human beings the way we see each other, but he had this sense of, you know, how do you describe that world? Because, you, I mean, I, I made the point earlier, there's, there's a fusion of something familiar and strange in the Marina poem. And I think the, what you just described, Jay, is just a perfect description of that same quality, that there's this here and not here. And well, To me, it was kind of the, the conflict that Beckett himself was going through, too. You know, like just pick martyrdom, for example. You know, he was dealing with, am I, am I looking at martyrdom in the right way? You know, am I doing it because... Don't go there. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Don't go there. But to me, that's kind yep. of what the... Yep. But, but it's in the choruses, too. It's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and the choruses really... I mean, they say, we've been half partly living and not living, and I can't... I'm, we're going to get yeah, to that. Yeah. yeah. It's everywhere. Nobody's... Because I remember, I remember saying this when it first hit me. I think when we were doing we were so so powerfully when we were doing Moby Dick, and I can't remember what was going on, but the absence of the sacraments and what that meant for Ishmael's trip out. And I gave the example. Well, or maybe it was Elias Cortez. I don't remember, but I said, when when we take the Eucharist and we carry the Eucharist in us, and we got to the parking lot, 
Where are we? I remember going through that a number of times because it so struck me. There's no way to take the Eucharist and not find yourself living in the middle of a mystery. Either that or we're taking it for granted. It's just another performer act. If we're, taking, if we're taking the Eucharist and it's a part of us and we're in God's kingdom and that's where it takes us, where are we? It had to be Elliot. What's he called? There and not there. The still point and not. You know, moving. And, it must have been in Elliot's quartets. I can't remember. But that sense that we're here and not here. If, if we take the Eucharist or we're involved in a sacrament and we don't feel that we're on the way or somewhere between, it just seems to me we're taking it. It's, it, it's a Protestant act. It's, com it's commemorative. Remember me. Either it's living and it throws us off or we're in trouble. I think we're in trouble. <laughs> I think we are. Bless your soul for... Yeah, I can't resist this. I, this morning, as I walk out of mass and walk through the foyer, the very first thing on the television screen is the ad for your class. So what? The <laughs> I don't know. What are you doing with that, Jay? I don't. Know. I don't know either. But I just I thought it's a sign, a literal sign. And what? I wasn't sure. But <laughs> don't put that on me. <laughs> That's fine. I'm so grateful to you guys. No, I am. That you guys are here just fills me with gratitude that you guys are doing this. Okay, let's do the, let's take a look at some of these characters and see what we make of them. <coughs> I'm going to just read a couple things from each of the main characters, the chorus, the priests, and the, and the tempters, um, to see if we can fill out what Elliot's doing. So page 11. Can you give us... Just page time. I can't. Okay. Take a. That's right. I'll just. Find it's it. just. I'll find it. Because there's no lines. There's no scenes. <coughs> Chorus. Here let us stand close by the cathedral. Here let us wait. Are we drawn by danger? Is it knowledge of safety that draws our feet towards the cathedral? What danger can be for us, the poor, the poor women of Canterbury? What tribulation with which we are not already familiar? There is no danger for us, and there is no safety in the cathedral. Some presage of an act which our eyes are compelled to witness has forced our feet toward the cathedral. We are forced to bear witness. Mm. Go to page 80, 89, I think. 80. <coughs> what's, the, what's the page? 80, 86, 87. Oh, 86. Sorry, I'll, get to, I'll come back tonight. Sorry, 86, 87. A te deum is being played in the background, um, and in the middle of 86, only in thy light and thy glory is declared even in that which denies thee. The darkness declares the glory of light. Those who deny thee could not deny if thou didst not exist, and their denial <coughs> is never complete, for if it were so, they could not exist. I hope that's clear to everybody. That's so profound. They could not deny unless he already existed because there would be no reason for the denial. And if they followed out their denial, they couldn't exist. Mm -hmm. There has to have been something to make them for they couldn't be there to make the exist or the denial. Um, so the, the, the chorus may mature some here. I just Let me leave it as a question. 87. E <coughs> Wait, sorry, 86 at the bottom. 
Even with the hand of the broom, the back bent in laying the fire, the knee bent in cleaning the hearth, we the scrubbers and sweepers of Canterbury, the back bent under toil, the knee bent under sin, the hands to the face under fear, the head bent under grief, even in us the voice of seasons, the snuffle of winter, the song of spring, the drone of summer, the voices of beasts and of birds to praise thee. Um, go down. From such ground springs that which forever renews the earth, though it's forever denied. Therefore, O God, we thank thee who has given such a blessing to common, or to Canterbury. Forgive us, O Lord. We acknowledge ourselves as types of the common man. Go back to page 1819. Page 18. The chorus, here's no continuing city. There's no abiding stay. Ill the wind, ill the time, uncertain the profit, certain the danger. Oh, late, 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 late is the time, late too late, and rotten the year. Evil the wind, and bitter the sea, and gray the sky, gray, gray. Oh, Thomas, return, Archbishop, return, return to France, return quickly, quietly, leave us to perish in quiet. You come with applause, you come with rejoicing, but you come bringing death into Canterbury. A doom on the house, there it is, a doom on the house, a curse. A doom on yourself, a doom on the world. We do not wish anything to happen. Seven years we have lived quietly, succeeding and avoiding notice, living and partly living. There it is. Okay. Go down. Yeah, we've gone on living, living and partly living. Go down again. Another year, the plums are lacking. We've gone on living, living and partly living. We have kept the feast, heard. That is, they're doing everything that's conventionally what people do, having dinners, you know, counting the seasons, adjusting to the seasons, talked at the corners of streets, talked not always in whispers, living and partly living. We have seen birth, death, and marriages. We have seen various scandals. Uh, but now a great fear is upon us, a fear not of one, but of many, a fear like birth and death, when we see birth and death alone. This is, remember the journey of the Magi, where he goes and then said, birth and death are connected in that act? And our hearts are torn from us, our brains and skin like the layers of an onion. Ourselves are lost, lost, in a final fear which none understands. O Thomas, Archbishop, O Thomas, our Lord, leave us and leave us be in our humble and tarnished frame of existence. Leave us. Do not ask us to stand to the doom on the house. There's the house of actors again. Let me stop for a second. Describe, characterize the chorus. Well, there's a big change from the beginning to the end, right? How oh, cool, mean, yeah. Well, and at the beginning you see that chorus flipping back and forth. I mean, they're basically you know, trying to be content with the life that they have, rationalizing whatever they must rationalize to, to, to live and not live, if you will. And in the end, after, you know, you, you see the transition. And it's, I, I, I think it's kind of in there somewhere where there's a, a gift of martyrdom that we receive in the sense that like Canterbury now has with the martyrdom of Thomas a sense to it that when other people go there you know they they feel that here was someone who made the right decision yeah uh, you know that was one with with God if you will and you see the chorus recognizing that and thankful for that so you kind of see that it in you know, the point where they're not living and now they're living was sort of what I yeah, walked from that. Yeah. 
everybody see, by the way, in the ancient course, the Greek course in, in Sophocles, Aeschylus, Eliot knew this stuff well because he, in the Greek course, the course always represented the common man. They, so they stood outside the tragic action. The tragic hero always had to bear a greater sin. Um, and it led you generally to death. In Oedipus, it led to blinding. You know, these are men who, who through their suffering, came to a point of seeing things the rest of the world didn't see. That's the nature of the tragedy. The chorus always stood outside them. They they stood for the status quo. They didn't want to be involved in the tragic action. It was too painful. They were not heroic. So the chorus is like that. They want to be left alone. They're telling Thomas, "Go back, go back." Um, Interesting, if we, if we continue to read at the end, remember this is after the sacrifice now, after the martyrdom. At the very end again, forgive us, O Lord, we acknowledge ourselves as type of the common man, of the men and women who shut the door and sit by the fire. So they still have that fear related to the common man, who fear the blessing of God, the loneliness of the night of God, the surrender required, the, dep the deprivation inflicted who fear the injustice of men less than the justice of God. Or, or I put it differently, who fear the justice of God more than the injustice of men. So even if they've changed, there's some way in which they're still... The heroic choice, the, the having to enter into a sacrifice, frightens them. Who fear the injustice of men less than the justice of God. Who fear the hand at the window, the fire and the thatch, the first and the tire, the push, push into the condemned, less than we fear the love of God. We acknowledge our trespass, our weaknesses, our fault. We acknowledge that the sin of the world is upon our heads, that the blood of the martyr and the agony of the saints is upon our heads. Lord, have mercy. The really interesting thing about the end for me is, I'm not sure how much they've changed with respect to um, offering their love and being with Christ. But they're certainly different in this respect. They're acknowledging their weaknesses in a great way because now they've got the sacrifice behind them. And so they're asking for mercy. They're praying for mercy. So at least they're acknowledging a sinfulness that we don't see earlier when they're doing what they do. Go back to 13. I want to look at the priests. Can I ask you about page 21? Yeah. Well, it, it comes in there to Thomas. Now, he hasn't been... We're talking about Thomas Beckett. Right? Yeah. Has he returned now from exile? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's at that point too. Um, here's the first priest. Um, page. See, page thirteen. Seven years and the summer is over. Seven years since the archbishop left us. Go to page fifteen. First priest again, does he come in full assurance or only secure in the power of Rome, the spiritual rule, the assurance of right and the love of people? 17. Um, I fear for the archbishop. I fear for the church. I know that the pride bred of sudden prosperity was but confirmed by bitter adversity. I saw him as chancellor, flattered by the king, liked or feared by courtiers in their overbearing fashion despised and despising, always isolated, never one among them, always insecure, his pride always feeding upon his own virtues, pride drawing sustenance from impartiality. This is when he was chancellor, remember? It's a political office to 
manage things so that justice is maintained. Pride drawing sustenance from generosity, loathing power given by temporal devotion, wishing subjection to God alone, had the king been greater or had he been weak, weaker, things had perhaps been different for Thomas. That's the messenger. Hmm? That's the messenger. First priest. So characterize the first priest. Here, hold on, just so, remember what, here, let me put this even more. In, in presenting the priests and then presenting the tempters and then the knights, he's going to be setting the sacerdotal order against the temporal, political. So in the three priests, he's giving us an image of three different <coughs> priests and the way they relate to this coming martyrdom. Well, the first, the first priest characterizes the conflict and helps us understand what the issue is, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, he, 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 was, he was effective as, as chancellor. And I, I guess to me the last line, had the king been greater or had he, Thomas, been weaker, things had perhaps been different for Thomas. So if, you know, it, Thomas was trying to find the balance between being chancellor and, and being archbishop, Not yet, but, but, oh. but I think he's, he's reflecting the, I think even as chancellor, Thomas was conflicted in the role that he was playing, although he was very good at it, and the role that he should be playing, if you will. And I think the priest <coughs> is helping us see that, that conflict and said things probably would have been different for, for Thomas if Thomas had been prepared to yield to the king or if the king had been prepared, prepared to yield to Thomas. Yeah. Take that for, for the second, I don't want to spend too much time here, because, but he says on 15, does he come in full assurance or only secure in the power of Rome the spiritual rule, the assurance of right, and the love of people? What it, does that say anything about him? Him, Thomas, or him, the priest? Or the priest. I think he's wondering, you know, if he's coming back. Is he coming back having reconciled with the king? Or is he coming back, you know, recognizing that the king is wrong, if you will, and he's going to have to to take a position directly in conflict with the king? Yeah. Because that's going to determine whether we're going to have peace or, or not. Or not, yeah. Does he come in full assurance, only secure in the power of Rome? That is, if he comes in Rome, he's not going to be able to do his job as a chancellor. It's going to put him at odds. Um, but it's interesting that he's looking for assurance, because everybody here, most everybody we're looking at has carries some fear that something's going to happen, and in some sense, it's going to put a trial. It's going to make a trial for all of them. In some way. Well, it's going to disturb the peace they have for seven years. Yep. Or what seems to be peace. Yeah. Be. Take a look at the second priest, page 13 again. <clears throat> the second priest says, What does the archbishop do? Our sovereign lord, the pope, with the stubborn king and the French king, in ceaseless intrigue, combinations, in conference, meetings accepted, meetings refused, meetings unended or endless at one place or another in France. Page 17. 
Yet our Lord has returned, our Lord has come back to his own again. We have had enough of waiting from December to dismal December. The Archbishop shall be at our head, dispelling dismay and doubt. He will tell us what we are to do. He will give us our orders, instruct us. Our Lord is at once with the Pope and also the King of France. We can lean on a rock. We can feel a firm foothold against the perpetual wash of tides of balance, of forces, of barons and landholders. The rock of God is beneath our feet. Let us meet the Archbishop with cordial thanksgiving. Our Lord, our Archbishop, returns. And when the Archbishop returns, our doubts are dispelled. Let us therefore rejoice. I say rejoice and show a glad face for his welcome. I am the Archbishop's man. Let's give the Archbishop welcome. Turn to 21. Um, the, the priest, I'm sorry, the chorus has just said, remember, Thomas, go back. Go back at the top of 21. Oh, Thomas, leave us, leave us, leave Solon, set sail. The second priest says, what a way to talk at such junker. You are foolish, immodest, and babbling women. Do you not know that the good archbishop is likely to arrive at any moment? The crowds in the streets will be cheering and cheering. You go on croaking like frogs in the treetops. But frogs at least can be cooked and eaten. Whatever you're afraid of in your craven apprehension, let me ask you at least to put on pleasant faces and give a merry, hearty welcome to our good archbishops. Characterize the second. Bobby, characterize. And as soon as you stop, kick your leg out to the left a little bit and get her response. <laughs> what do you say? Anything? A lot different than the first priest. I don't he care. Is, yeah. I mean, he's welcoming. He's looking forward to him coming back and restoring, making things better in general. In Not particular. Hmm? Well, cool. Why? Well, because the king's going to be the king. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a little, it's interesting. Come back as archbishop as if that's going to settle things when the fact is that because he's coming back as archbishop, it's going to make things worse. He's forcing the king into making a decision about whether to... Thomas. Yeah, Thomas is yeah. coming back is forcing the king to make yeah. a decision. By the way, just as a background thing, I don't know if this is how... The Pope tried to intervene in this and asked Thomas to try to reconcile with the king. Remember, the king of Henry is um, squabbling with the king of France in Normandy. The lords are at it, the, bear, or the bishops are at it, um, and the pope has asked Thomas to return and try to reconcile. Um, but there's a general sense that when he comes back as archbishop, everybody knows that it's... it's anybody else? It's interesting. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, the second priest says on 15, you know, are the old disputes at an end, is the wall of pride cast down that divided them. So even the second priest, who finally says we need to welcome him and be glad, recognizes the pride on both sides, the king mm -hmm. and Thomas. Yeah. Sorry, Fred. No, I, I, I saw in the second priest a, a little bit different perspective in a sense that, you know, if you're in that living, non-living, if you're trying to you know, if you're living in the chaos, or you're trying to find the center point. It's it's frustrating. It's it's chaotic. It's tiring, exhausting. And I I, I saw the second priest just kind of saying, "At last, we're going to have somebody come in and lead us out of the chaos 
toward the center point. So right. I saw the first priest kind of setting up the conflict for us, explaining what was going on. Second priest is kind of a reflection of the chaos of the chorus and helping helping find you know true north, if you will. Yeah. It, Don, did you have something? But, um, but you know, he what he said is something you said earlier. I said about a piece, and you said you said something like it wasn't a real piece. It was just sort of right semi-permanent type of thing, not semi-permanent. But anyway, so what? That's what he's yeah. saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting to me. Um, this is so hard because there's so little to go on. Um, our Lord has returned. He's come back. He shall be our head, dispelling dismay and doubt. Our Lord, it's not going to be that. He's going to be killed. Um, so there's something illusory here. I mean, these, none of these priests seem... Another, I mean, just, I, I, don't, I don't know much about church hierarchy, but in the absence of an archbishop, it seems to me the priests who are there have to step up. And it's a serious question, how many of these priests are going along? <coughs> you know, there's something lacking in the priestly order here. The, the, the focus of the story is a or a martyrdom. And the, the way everything is presented raises questions about how everybody relates to that. We've seen the chorus's response, now we're seeing the, these are priests. Um, take the third, page 14. I see nothing quite conclusive in the art of temporal government, but violence, duplicity, frequent malversation, king's rule or baron's rule. The strong man strongly and the weak man by caprice. They have but one law to seize the power and keep it, and the steadfast can manipulate the greed and lust of others. The feeble is devoured by his own. Fifteen. What peace can be found to grow between the hammer and the anvil? Eighteen. <coughs> For good or ill, let the wheel turn. This is Boethius's wheel. That's an illusion, okay? That is, it's, it's, a, it, it's an acknowledgement of fortune. We don't, is everybody clear on that? Remember how important fortune was, that we don't know what contingencies are going to follow contingencies. The closer you are to the edge, the more you're going to be caught up. The closer you are to the center, the deeper your understanding will be. Okay. For good or ill, let the wheel turn. The wheel has been still these seven years, and no good for ill or good. Let the wheel turn. For who knows the end of good or evil? That is, sometimes we know this. Evil things come from good actions. Did Christ's crucifixion put an end to wars or evil? And very often, um, uh, good comes out of evil. I mean, something happens to put a, you know, with an answer. So... For good or ill, let the wheel turn. For who knows the end of good or evil? Until the grinders cease, and the door shall be shut in the street, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Characterize the third priest. Fatalist. <coughs> okay, how about fatalist or realist? Say why, Barbara. No, come on, I'll really, come on, go ahead. Well, he knows what's probably going to happen. And I think the Pope was delusional to, to send him back to England. And either the Pope had so much faith and didn't know God's plan, or... Or he was, did. And, and thought that was the best yeah, way to get it right. fixed. But, but I, this guy, can you say... 
He, I believe he really is a realist. He looks at it and says. Right. What was your word again? Fa or fatalist? A fatalist. Yeah. Can you can you flesh that out? And explain why you used that. Well, Thomas is going to get killed. That's pretty fatal. Um, things are going to happen, and there's perhaps nothing that can do about them. Yeah. I think yeah. that's the best I have. It's good. Anybody else? I think the fact that he uses the illusion. I'm so glad to hear you. The fact that he uses, I, that was the word that came to my mind too. And the fact that he uses the illusion of the wheel. And that the wheel is just spinning, and it's there's really no control over it. And so I think that that's the perspective that he's taking: is that okay? Let's let's play this out in a in a fatalistic way. In that what's going to be is going to be, and that's nothing that he really can be doing about it. It's easy to be a fatalist if you're not the one who's going to die, though. But yeah. that's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. <coughs> although that gives us the perspective we need in order to understand what's going on. But two and three both suggest there's been a cost to the limbo period. The seven years of limbo, <coughs> there's been a cost to, to that. The first, not so much. And they're both saying, two and three are saying, at least we're going to have action. At least we're right. going to have somebody to cling to. At least there are, are benefits there that the seven-year limbo has cost us something. I want to go because I want to be careful. I want to try to get this in the next 10 minutes, so I want to do this quickly. It's first Tempter, 23. I'm going to go through the First Tempter myself, and if you just let me, because I want to be careful of time. 23. You see, my Lord, I do not wait upon ceremony. Here I've come forgetting all acrimony, hoping that your present gravity will find excuse for my humble living. Notice the rhyming, too, by the way. Remembering all the good time past, your lordship won't despise an old friend out of favor. Old Tom, gay Tom, Beckett of London, your lordship won't forget that evening they grew up pals. Um, he goes on um, talking about the seasons and good meals and um, page 25, my lord is a nod is as good as a wink. A man will often love what he spurns for the good times past are to come again, I'm your man. Let me shorten this, or at, at, the, at the bottom. Be easy man, the easy man lives to eat the best dinner. The first tempter is, is appealing to those principles that Boethius said are the four temporal goods that most people strive for, that's the source of our happiness, but when we make them too important, they become evils. What were they, do you remember? Greed. Close, but, huh? Power, wealth, you're on a roll. Pride. It's close to, huh? Pleasure. And your, it's reputation or image or honor. Power, wealth, honor, reputation, and pleasure. This guy's presenting him with those temptations. Let's go back to the way it was, have good dinners, good meals, you know, okay? If I can leave it, go, I want to, because I want to be careful of time, I want to leave a moment. The second timber on page 27. <clears throat> the chancellorship that you resigned when you were made archbishop, that was a mistake on your part, still may be regained. Think, my lord, power obtained grows to glory, life lasting a permanent possession. A temple, tomb, monument, of marble, that is, you know, the recognition you get. 
Um, to the man of God, what gladness. Sadness, only to those giving love to God alone. Shall he who held the solid substance wander walking with deceitful shadows? Power is present, holding us hereafter. So he's asking Thomas to take on the power that he had as chancellor and let that define him as archbishop. This is time for power, holding us hereafter. Going over, 28. Chancellor, king and chancellor. King commands, chancellor richly rules. This is a sentence not taught schools. To set down the great, protect the poor, beneath the throne of God, can man do more? To serve the king, look at all the good you can do. Disarm the ruffian, strengthen the laws, rule the, for the good or the better cause. Dispensing justice, make all even, is thrive on earth and perhaps in heaven. Um, going over. Yes, or bravery will be broken. Cabot in Canterbury, realmless ruler, self-bound servant of a powerless pope. The old stag circled with hounds. No. Yes, men must maneuver. Monarchs also waging war abroad need fast friends at home. Private policy is public profit. You forget the bishops whom I've laid under excommunication. Hungry hatred will not strive against intelligent self-interest. Um, let me... Um, here, over in 31, no, no, that's, let, let me stop. Can you characterize the third tempter? Second. Or sorry, sec, second, yeah. Doc, can you, did you? He wants him to um, take up the earthly power that was his as chancellor and, um, and hope that by doing good as a chancellor, you know, maybe he'll some reward in heaven. As a chancellor or a bishop now. Right. Yeah. Um, you know that Thomas can't do that because once he becomes archbishop, he serves God immediately. As chancellor, his immediate earthly duties were justice and taking care of all, and, and effectively obviously did. Did some, somebody? It's it summarized pretty well on page 28 that real power is purchased at a price of a certain submission. Your spiritual power is earthly perdition. Power yeah. is present for whom we will wield. Say what page that, because I, I forgot. 28. Oh, right, yeah, good. Power is present for, oh, no, I, your spiritual power is earthly perdition. Paraphrase that, Fred. Um, it's, it's almost like, I guess, your, your spiritual power is what's pulling you down, that, that n need you have for that. It'll make everything you do on this earth a misery. Right. Right? Because his frame of reference is temporal power and everything that defined the chancellor. The third tempter, go to 31. Um, he says, I'm no trifler. Let me cut this short. He, he identifies with the lords and the nobles. And he wants to see the king and the nobles um, um, limited um, so that he can take on his power. He says, 31, I know to hold my estates in order, a country-keeping lord who minds his own business. If we, country lords who know the country, and we who know what country needs, it's our country. We care. We're the backbone. On 33, we're for England. We are in England. You and I, Lord, are Normans. England is a land for Norman sovereignty. Let the Angevin destroy himself fighting in Anjou. He does not understand us, English barons. We are the people. Um, go down. For a powerful party which has turned its eye in your direction to gain from you, your lordship asks. 
For us, church favor would be an advantage, blessing of the Pope, powerful protection in the fight for liberty. You, my Lord, in being with us, would fight a good stroke at once for England and for Rome, ending the tyrannous jurisdiction of King's Court over Bishop's Court, King's Court over um, Baron's Court. Um, Thomas, um, or 34, the tempter says, Kings will allow no power but their own church and people have good cause against the throne. Down below, Thomas says, And I in the tilt yard I made many yields. Shall I who ruled like an eagle over doves now take the shape of a wolf among wolves? Pursue your treacheries as you have done before. No one shall say I betrayed a king. This guy wants limits put on the barons and the kings in order for his own benefit. So he's hoping to get support from the pope, from the papacy to do that. So he's using the spiritual order for political ends. Okay? Now, here's what I wanted to get, because this one is... The last one, here, before I, before I do, it's pretty clear that these tempters are real characters. But we can also see them as images of something interior, inward in Thomas. That they're struggles with something in his own heart that he as a man has had to do with. The temptations of the world, the temptations to temporal power, all of it. Is that sort of like self-talk? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're reflecting on yourself. So we can look at the, I think we're supposed to look at them as real characters, but I think it's also important to see that they could be images of something invisible in Thomas because it's his interior. It's like his conscience. The, the temptations that we all face. Look at 35. This tempter comes and he's strange. Thomas, who are you? I expected three good... So he does not expect this one. Do not be surprised to receive one more. I have been expected. I have been here before. I always precede expectation. Who are you? As you do not know me, I do not need a name. And as you know me, there you are. Um, as you know me, I, as you do not know me, I do not need any. As you know me, that is why I came. There's your exist and non-exist, Jay. You know me, but have never seen my face. To meet before was never time or place. Say what you come to say. It shall be said at last. Hooks have been baited. As for the king, his heart of hatred shall have no end. Go down, uh, borrow, use cautiously, and pull your surface as long as you have to lend. You would wait for trap to snap, having served your turn, broken and crushed. As for barons, envy of lesser men is still more stubborn than a king's anger. Kings have public policy, barons private. Jealousy raging, possessions of the fiend. Barons are employable against each other. Greater enemies must kings destroy. That is, kings will come, kings will go. Barons will come, they will go. They will destroy kings, kings will destroy barons. Business is business. People are competitive. They're going to do, outdo each other. What's your counsel? Fare forward to the end. All other ways are closed to you except the way already chosen. But what is pleasure, kingly rule, or rule of men beneath the king, with craft in corners, stealthy stratagem, to general grasp of spiritual power? Man oppressed by sin, since Adam fell, you hold the keys of heaven and hell. Power to bind and loose, bind, Thomas, bind, king and bishop, under your heel, king, emperor, bishop, baron, king, uncertain mastery of melting armies, war, plague, and revolution, new conspiracies, broken pacts, to be master or servant within the hour, 
This is the course of temporal power. The old king shall know it when at last breath, no sons, no empire, he bites broken teeth. He dies. You hold the skein, wind, wine, Thomas wine, the thread of eternal life and death. You hold this power. Um, going over on page 38. Um, he says that all people will die at the top of the page. Kings will be forgotten. Martyrs will rule from the tomb. Go down. Um, your thoughts have more power. Your thoughts have more power than kings to compel you. You have also thought sometimes at your prayers, sometimes hesitating at the angle of stairs. Between sleep and waking early in the morning, when the bird cries, have thought of further scorning. That nothing lasts but the wheel turns, the nest is rifled and the bird mourns. The shrine shall be pillaged and the gold spent, the jewels gone for a light lady's ornament. He goes on. Go on over. But pondering the qualities that you lacked will only try to find the historical fact. That is, people who do your biographies write about you will be critical of you. They'll remember your faults and try to see facts in light of them. That is, nobody's going to understand what this is all about. When men shall declare that there was no mystery about this man who played a certain part in history, read historians' accounts of these. And you'll set it next to the play and you'll laugh. There's only so much historians are going to say. But what is there to do? So what, if this is true, what, what's left to be done? Is there no enduring crown to be won? Go down, seek the way of martyrdom, make yourself the lowest on earth to be high in heaven, to see far below you, below you where the gulf is fixed, your prosecutors in timeless torment, parched passion beyond it. Thomas, no, who are you tempting with my own desires? Tempter, I offer what you desire, I ask what you have to give. Is it too much? for such a vision of eternal grandeur. Others offer real goals, worthless but real. You offer dreams to damnation. Then the tempter says at the bottom, you know and do not know what it is to act or suffer. You know and do not know that action is suffering and suffering action. Neither does the agent suffer nor the patient act. You know the agent is instrumental. So the images of somebody just doing something, not acting. The patient is one who suffers. Patient comes from passion. When you're a patient, something's working on you. When you pass in front of a bakery store and you see a piece of cake, you, you have a passion. I hope that's clear. That thing is working on you and you become helpless to do anything about it. It's a passion for it. It's passive. You're letting the world work. Christ's passion is called a passion because he allowed the world to have its way with him. Um, both are fixed in eternal action and eternal patient, to which all must consent that it may be willed, and which all must suffer that they may will it. The pattern may subsist, but the wheel may turn and still be forever still. That's straight out of Boethius. The chorus comes in for a moment, and there's... Um, uh, a strophe ant antistrophe that all the characters respond to, to each other. And then on 44, it comes to this. Um, the, the chorus is despairing, and Thomas says, Now is my word clear, now is the meaning plain. Temptation shall not come in this kind again. The last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. The natural vigor and the venial sin is the way in which our lives begin. 
Um, 30 years ago, I searched all the ways that lead to pleasure, advancement, praise, delight in sense, in learning, and in thought, music, philosophy, curiosity, the purple bullfinch in the lilac tree, it goes on. Um, all of those things were equally de um, desirable. Then he says, um, while I ate out of the king's dish, 45, to become servant of God was never my wish. Servant of God has chance of greater sin and sorrow than the man who serves a king. For those who serve the greater cause may make the cause serve them. Um, and it's at this point he says um, at the bottom, but for every evil, every sacrilege, crime, wrong, oppression, and the axe's edge, indifference, exploitation, you and you and you must all be punished. So must you. I shall no longer act or suffer to the sword's end. Now my good angel whom God appoints to be my guardian hover over the sword's point. So what do we, who is this tempter? What do we characterize this tempter? And how do we understand the position Thomas takes here at the end before the break because of what the tempters said? This is the most complicated, the, the, the most obscure, I think, the most complicated of the tempters. I, I sort of see this tempter as, you know, the die is cast. You know how this is going to end. So if you're going to go out, go out flaming. You know, nobody's going to remember Henry II and who he was or what he did. But everybody's going to remember the martyr that died at his hands. So, you know, take the glory of being a martyr and, you know, people will remember you for What's what you What's the done. temptation? And I, I think it's, 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 it's going on inside him. You know, okay, he, he already knows how this is going to end. And he's saying, okay, well, if, if it's going to end, I might as well be a martyr. And he's, and he's, and he's, and, but he says, but he's, you know, I, you have to, you have to be, you have to do it for the right reason. And I think that's what he was conflicting in his own mind is, am I doing it for the right reason? And in the end, after all of this, he realized that, you know, I let, let, let God's will be done. And if I wind up being a martyr, let it be for the right reason. Is it for the right reason at this point? What is, I mean, can you flesh that out at all? Do I, what, I, well, I, 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 I don't know if I can flesh that out or not, but I, I feel like the way he, the way what he says at the end, at the, it, at the, passage at the very the, end, suggests wait, at the end of the whole thing or the one I just no read? the end that you just you just read, yeah. um, the guardian angel, the guardian angel, um, he's he, he's he's said if if it, if if I become a martyr out of all of this, if that's the way it ends, you know. I want it to be for the right reason. I think he's. I think he's at that. It's kind of like for me. It was kind of like the the Achilles moment. Mm -hmm. From here on, he's untouchable. He's, you know, he's he's figured out, you know, what he needs to do. Why does he need a guardian angel then? I, well, now to, my good angel and God to, to make sure to he guardian. continues to do it for the right reason. Anyway, that was protecting him from from the wrong way. Right. Yeah. Which is what? 
doing it for his own personal glory. Yeah. <clears throat> as, as opposed right. to doing it because it's the right thing right. to do. Is everybody clear in that? And at this point, he ha- he knows if he's if he's to do it, if it's to be done in the right way, he has to get rid of his ego, any regard to self that he's doing it. And I think the prayer for the angel is to guard him. So, um, why is this the greatest temptation, uh, tempter from all of the tempters? I'm to you can say that about all of them. Yeah. Doesn't it get to the root of the self? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in in our world. We we do everything for ourselves, whether we want to admit it, because we do so much good. But so often that self. I mean, if if Christ's call is away from the world and ourself, none of us can do that without getting rid of ourself. And that's the last tempter to to do the right thing for the wrong reason. He's and obviously this is a serious danger. Really serious. Because he says earlier, I can go to hell. And he wants this guy out. Because he knows he can be damned if he follows this way. Well, it's the one thing, one of the things that Christ warned us about, right? Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? Francis? No? No, but no. It is. I mean... You see it all the time, people that are call themselves attention to themselves for what they're doing, uh, the good they're doing, and they make sure other people know the good they're doing. I would, I would frame Which, that in terms of us. Of well, them. all of us do yeah, that. Yeah, we just all think, do that. I just think it's, it's yeah. so... I mean, this, at this point, he's approaching the place of mystics where... You have to completely get yourself out of it in order for this. And what do you make of this? Because the last temper, and this will be the last and we'll stop. Um, here, on page 40, you know and do not know. This is Jay again. There's this, um, because he, I hope everybody's aware that there is this other and here, the familiar and the strange, the temporal and the metaphysical or the spiritual. Neither does the agent suffer nor the patient act, but both are fixed. In an eternal action, an eternal patience, to which all must consent, to which all must consent that it may be will, and which all must suffer that they may will it, that the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. You can hear the pun. What's he saying? That's 4041. What's he saying? Paradoxes and renunciations are just right at the heart, and we're so close to the, the world of the mystic here. Is he denying free will? Yeah. To which all must consent, to which all must consent that it may be willed, and which all must suffer that they may will it, that the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. The, the Marina poem was taken from Pericles, and it was at that point that Eliot recognized that Shakespeare was working with a higher pattern, what he called a supernatural pattern, and that it was through the things of this world that we could catch glimpses of that pattern. What is that pattern? And does it deny our free will or not? 
Boy, we're in heavy stuff here. I think it's like, like a spinning wheel. There's there's turning going all on all the time, but at the same time, there's no turning going on at all. And you can either be out there on the edge of the wheel and you never know what's coming next and you don't know what to do about it when it does, or you can exercise free will and start moving toward the center and things start making more sense to you. And if you, if you wind up like Thomas Beckett and you find your way to the center, you know, you ultimately find, you know, peace. peace yeah. Um, what is the one thing we absolutely know without question in this life? The one thing we can't escape? Death. Yeah. What's the one thing that, according to our belief, what's the one thing that we know in eternity that's fixed? God. God. And, according to our belief, Christ's redemption. That's fixed. He did it for everybody. Will everybody accept it? Um, Apparently not. <laughs> yeah, and, and, well, yeah, and, well, but there's, right, there's a pattern. So this whole work of dying and regeneration, we just talked about it in Pericles, the play, um, Winter's Tale, um, Marina, the poem. The Last Tempter says, because some people say, like the Calvinists, some people say because it's fixed, it's predestined, you can't escape it, you have no free will. I mean, people make that argument. Here the tempter is saying, I love these lines, they're, 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 so, they're, they're rich in paradox, paradoxical meaning. Both are fixed in an eternal action and eternal patience to which all must consent that it may be willed that we will what Christ has willed for us, and which all must suffer that they may will it. Through suffering we enter into it. Remember, um, um, Boyd, you said, there is no bad fortune. The church keeps saying, be glad for everything. When the suffering comes, we're supposed to see God at work in it. Will we give ourselves to what he's doing? Will, does that mean doing nothing? I don't think so. I think it means using all your gifts. Ellis gifts were as a poet. You're not, not doing anything. He's written. Um, both are fixed in an eternal action and eternal patience to which all must consent that it must be willed, maybe willed, and which all must suffer that they may will it, because it's through suffering that we go there, that the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. So we're, while we're on this earth and we're caught in the motion of flux, things happen, we will suffer things, we will... Are we, are we moving towards that still point? What's scary is that... Wait, one second, sorry. The whole, the whole, sorry. The whole poem is about the action of renunciation. That Beckett returns aware... And you know that everybody else's actions are defined by the chorus, the priests, the tempters. So the whole action takes as its center or still point in this, all this motion, the cross, the entering into. Sorry, Doc. What's, um, what's scary to me is that this last thing, this is the tempter speaking, and he's quoting Thomas. If you go back to 21, Thomas says, 
exactly the same. Thing. Read the lines, and I take every. Um, they know and do not know. So the tempter says, "You know and do not know." But Thomas right. says, "They know and do not know what it is to act or suffer. They know and do not know that action is suffering and suffering is action. Neither does the agent suffer, nor the patient act, but both are fixed in an eternal action, an eternal patience." to which all must consent that it may be willed, and which all must suffer that they may will it, that the pattern may subsist, for the pattern is the action and the suffering, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. Now what's frightening? Wow. Now what's because it's the tempter who's saying that. I mean, this is Thomas, he's saying it. And that makes sense for him to understand that and be thinking that and helping himself with that. Um, but here is the tempter repeating back his same words. Um, We've known all along that this is, in one sense, Thomas's conscience. So, yeah, it's what's per, what's I mean, what it, what's puzzle? Why would you say what's frightening? What frightens? Just that the tempter uses Thomas. His, yeah, yeah, uses Thomas against Thomas. Yeah, I mean, he's trying to talk him into something. But else. does he resolve it? Is it resolved for Thomas? Thomas, Thomas resolves it. Yes. Now, where? Um, By the end. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I just yeah. didn't realize that that was a, what? actually lifting a quote. <laughs> That's all. She's smart. So plagiarist. <laughs> no. You didn't. I know you didn't just. Any more questions wow. or comments, Jay? Well, you? the temptations harken all the way back to the devil's temptations for Christ. In he used that Christ against him too. Yeah, those, good. you know, food, earthly goods, earthly pleasures, you can rule over everything around it. Yeah, that's Robert. Very same concept. It's good to see you again. You guys have a safe trip. Say hi to you. Say hi to your friend. I will say hi to my friend. You guys have a good week. We'll, um, I was allowing three weeks. I'm not sure that we'll need them. You guys did such a great job today. It's the, there's less to do in it, but we've got next week and maybe the week after. The likelihood is we'll we'll maybe finish it next week or get close to finishing it. And if we do, if we don't, in the third week, we'll spend a little bit of time on Thomas and start Dostoevsky. My suggestion is start Yes, start your engines because it's. It's going to make Moby Dick look short. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really readable. Bless, bless all your readable? You guys yeah, but you notice how small the writing is. Yeah, can you imagine how many volumes? There's a lot of words in there. Yeah. Wow. That was heavy. <laughs> One second time. Now, is this the last of us? Yeah. God, I can't even see.